Good afternoon and welcome. I'm Asadur Santoyan. I'm the artistic administrator of the Aspen Music Festival and School. And with me is the most original musical thinker of our time, stated by the New Yorker, the composer Steve Reich. Please sit down. Absolutely. Reich has been called America's greatest living composer by the Village Voice and among the great composers of the century by the New York Times. His music has influenced composers and mainstream musicians all over the world. Music for 18 musicians and different trains have earned him two Grammys. And in 2009, his double sextet won the Pulitzer Prize. His documentary video opera works The Cave and Three Tales, done in collaboration with video artist Beryl Corot, have been performed on four continents. Now, the next fact is really quite astonishing for a town like London. His quartet for percussionist Colin Curry sold out two consecutive concerts at Queen Elizabeth Hall in London shortly after Tens of thousands at the Glastonbury Festival heard Johnny Greenwood of Radiohead fame perform Electric Counterpoint, followed by the London Sinfonietta performing his music for 18 musicians. That's amazing. In 2012, he was awarded the Gold Medal in Music by American Academy of Arts and Letters. Earlier, he won the Premium Imperial in Tokyo, the Polar Prize in Stockholm, the BBVA Award in Madrid, and recently the Golden Lion at the Biennale Venice. He has been named Commandeur de l'Ordre des Arts et Lettres and has been awarded honorary doctorates by the Juilliard School, the Liszt Academy in Budapest, and the New England Conservatory, among others. There's just a handful of living composers who can legitimately claim to have altered the direction of musical history, and Steve Reich is one of them. Ladies and gentlemen, Steve Reich. Welcome. Sit down. Steve, um, your music is a unique voice in a forest of composers and over 400 years, it is absolutely individual, unique, and stellar by its own virtue. Um, the LA Philharmonic have landed a coup because typically you do not write for works for ensemble and orchestra. Here you have, and thank you for that. And it's going to have life beyond here with the New York Philharmonic, the Sydney Symphony, the Baltic Sea, and coming around to the San Francisco Symphony in June, and of course, Probably, it's a long-awaited work by many others, and it'll have a life like your other works um, beyond these premiere performances with these wonderful orchestras around the globe. And thank you for doing so. What's the genesis of the work? Why, why did they convince you to do this, and how did you find it a natural thing for you? Uh, well, how do you do? Welcome. It's a full house here Sunday afternoon. Um, 
My wife and I spend Januarys and Februarys here in Los Angeles to visit our son and to get away from the cold weather in New York. And while here, I think it was last January, I came to the LA Phil, and I was just looking at the stage setup, which is the same for or orchestras all over the world, which is you have a conductor, and then you have a very tight ring of the principal string players. They're very close on. They're close enough so that if you took away the conductor, they could play string quartets. They're seated in that position. Right behind them are the principal winds. There's two flutes, two oboes, two clarinets, and so on. And uh, I was looking at it, and I was thinking, gee, if you just put in two vibes and two pianos, that'd be the ensemble that I write for characteristically, because mostly I don't write for orchestra. I do write for ensembles. Right. So um, I began thinking, well, here's an opportunity to sort of have your cake and eat it. Because uh, if you just add the strings who are already in their normal position, and a few, I, I chose four trumpets and not the rest of the brass section, uh, there would be a, a possibility for music for an ensemble and orchestra uh, at the same time and available all over the world. So it's sort of a very, like many musical decisions are made, you'd be surprisingly, you'd be surprised how practicality enters into those decisions. Um, how did you get started? How, do you, how did you become Steve Reich? I mean, what, 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 what were your influences and what, what interested you that, that from that you evolved and developed? Well, as a child, I took piano lessons but at the age of 14, as I've said here many times. I, I, uh, for the first time, uh, prior to the age of 14, I had heard Beethoven's Fifth, Schubert Unfinished, Overture to the Meistersinger, uh, Rhapsody in Blue, wonderful piece, and the popular music of the 1940s. I was born in 1936, uh, the equivalent of what we call Top 40 later on. But I had never heard any music prior to Haydn and any music after Wagner. And at the age of 14, a friend said, hey, come on over, I want you to hear something. And he played me a recording of The Rite of Spring by Igor Stravinsky, and my jaw fell and I felt this is the most wonderful thing I've ever heard in my life. <laughs> and two weeks later, he said, come, come on back. And he played me the fifth Brandenburg concerto by Johann Sebastian Bach, which in a sense is a little bit of uh, lies in back of the piece you'll hear tonight. Uh, two weeks later after that, another friend invited me over and he played me recordings of Charlie Parker, Miles Davis, Kenny Clark, and I be became in love with American jazz and immediately stopped studying piano and started studying percussion with Roland Koloff, who was the local good drummer uh, in, in Mamaroneck, New York, and who became the timpanist with the New York Philharmonic. So that's sort of my early background, and that, that went on, uh, I think, significant additions to that later after that I went to Cornell University, studied music history and philosophy, and then I went to the Juilliard School, where uh, I think for me and for most people who go through a music school as composers, the most practical thing and the most useful thing is that you write a piece, it gets played. And you find out what you did right and what you did wrong. And then you write another piece and hopefully you do better and on and on. But it's practical, daily, uh, uh, practical experience that uh, is the valuable, most valuable part of that. I then went out to the West Coast and did a MA at Mills College, which is primarily a women's college. but. At the graduate level, they've always had men, and the teacher was Luciano Berrio, wow. who was very much part of the whole European serial, Stockhausen, Boulez, Berrio group of people, and uh, also a charming, delightful, flexible human being. 
Um, and uh, shortly after that, I became interested uh, as a percussionist. I said to myself, where on earth is percussion the dominant voice in the orchestra? What's the dominant voice in our orchestra? What's the dominant instrument in our orchestra? Come on. What? Strings. <laughs> there are over 80 of them. I mean, that's very clear. The strings are the dominant. Okay. Well, in two places on earth, namely in Africa and in Indonesia, percussion is the dominant voice in the orchestra. So if you're a percussionist and you want to go to where people have developed that to a very high art, those are two places to study. And uh, I went in the summer of 1970 to the University of Ghana in, in Accra and studied drumming with the, the, the uh, Ghana National Dance Ensemble. And in the summers of 73 and 74, I studied Balinese gamelan with Balinese teachers in first Seattle and then in Berkeley. So uh, that together, uh, and I would say also that as while I was studying with Luciano Berrio during the days, at night I was going to hear John Coltrane. And he had a very, very powerful, night school was very valuable. Uh, it had a very powerful influence on myself and on Terry Riley and on Phil Glass and a lot of people who have written music in a similar vein. So that's a, a, a fast curricula vitae. Well, thank you. Um, you made a reference to this work and Bach. Do you want to just give a little primer about this work? Well, uh, two things. Uh, the, the, the Brandenburg and Shaders in general are part of a genre in the Baroque period called Concerto Grosso. What is Concerto Grosso? Concerto Grosso is basically not a concerto for violin, not a concerto for piano, but a concerto for several instruments. The fifth Brandenburg is for flute, violin, and harpsichord. They are the soloists. And uh, that is the idea that touched me up. Well, what if you had a whole lot more, quote, soloists? Then you'd have the kind of ensemble that I characteristically write for and they would take their place. And then, as I mentioned to you earlier, coming here and looking at you know, who's, who's seated right there in front so they can be heard, there, there is that ensemble. There's also actually a musical reference, uh, which I was, just some, I was just doing an interview with a journalist, and he, he caught this. There's a little phrase in the second and the fourth movement of the piece you'll hear tonight. They kind of go, da -na -dee -da -da -na -dee -na -da -na -da -na, which is a kind of a offhanded allusion to the opening of the fifth Brandenburg, which many of you know. So that's a little tip of the hat, and uh, that is about the long and short of the relationship. Question? Bravo, bravo, thank you. So last night we had fun opening up the floor to questions. Um, We'll take a few questions for Mr. Reich, if there are interested parties. There's a question there. Why do you always wear a cap? He asked me why I always wear a cap. Jewish men have been covering their head for thousands of years. And I'm a part of that tradition. I see. I'm also an American, so baseball caps are readily available and are often used while davening, believe it or not. There was a wonderful question last night about you and Terry Riley and in C. Could you tell that story to our audience? Uh, well, he's asking, he's asking me the relationship between myself and Terry Riley. When Terry Riley wrote the piece in C, we were neighbors in San Francisco because I was studying at Mills College, as I mentioned. And uh, I, I, I had an ensemble that I had put together 
and gave to Terry to use in the piece. And while we were rehearsing, we were having a hard time staying together, you know, rhythmically staying together. And uh, I'm the good drummer. So I said, Terry, we've got to have a pulse in this piece, someone playing a pulse. And uh, 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 a young lady went to the top of the piano and started playing. This is the very high C's on top of the piano. Ding, 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 ding. And uh, that has stayed with the piece. So I learned a great deal from uh, playing in, in, in C. And I made my contribution, which is still with the piece. Question over there. Well, I'll leave that to you and the, uh, and the uh, music critics that exist, okay? <laughs> yes. Can you say something about relationships with Helen and the songs? Can you repeat that? Can you say something about your relationship with Helen and the songs? Yeah. Ah, the, I wrote a piece in 1981 called Tehillim, which is the Hebrew word for psalms. It means... Uh, basically, it's the root of the word is uh, hey, lamed, lamed, uh, hallelujah, praises. So Tehillim is translated as praises, later became psalmos in Greek and became psalms in English. Um, it's a setting of parts of the psalms in the original Hebrew for, for women's voices and a rather large ensemble. Um, and um, I guess I had become re-involved in Judaism and wanted to set a Hebrew text. And what better a text to set than the Psalms uh, on a number of levels. First of all, we know the Psalms were sung, but we in the West, Western Jews, have no idea how they were sung. Uh, the Yemenite Jews do have a living tradition, but we do not. So I was free to compose for uh, uh, a, uh, um, uh, a text which needed, needed words without having a superego sitting on my shoulder saying, hey, it goes this way. Uh, so, uh, also, as a footnote, when I, I had been writing pieces with short patterns for years and years and years and years, and Tehalim has, a, it begins, Hashem Sapparim And as I was walking around the house, my wife, the video artist, Beryl Karat, said to me, hey, you're actually singing. So I thought, well, I guess that's a good thing. In any event, uh, that's what I can tell you about the piece. I, it was played here last year and perform very well right here in Disney Hall. Any other questions? There's one back there. Uh, sorry. Your family was musical? Um, she asked if my family was musical. My mother was a, a singer and a lyricist. She appeared in the Broadway show um, New Faces of 1952 and saying, Love is a simple thing. That was a show that also introduced Eartha Kitt. Uh, my father was an attorney, he was a lawyer, and they were divorced when I was one year old. <laughs> I like the advice you gave to a young composer who asked, um, What advice would you give to a young composer? And you said, um, Well, if you play an instrument, Compo you enjoy my <laughs> go ahead. Go ahead. No, no, go ahead. Uh, he's, last night, uh, someone said, what would you say to a young composer in terms of advice? Uh, I have often said for years, uh, the only advice I have to you is get involved in the performance of your own music. If you play an instrument, play an instrument with your friends. If you conduct, conduct the ensemble. If you program a drum machine, program a drum machine, but get involved be practically involved 
and it will do you good in some way. I can't foresee, but it will do you a whole lot of good. Fantastic. Any other questions? Well, you're in for an incredible treat. Thank you very much for coming. Thank you, Steve. Thank you. Toy, toy, toy. Steve Reich, ladies and gentlemen. I will tell you uh, something that is not yet announced. Um, these performances, world premiere performances, are being recorded for a future release. So there will be a life after this performance uh, attached to the piece with the Los Angeles Philharmonic. So that's really amazing. And um, just as Bach was um, an influence on Steve, at least in the structure of the piece and the uh, uh, content of the piece that he wanted to write for ensemble and orchestra. Bach was very much on the mind and in the suitcase of Gustav Mahler when in 1901 he went out to Werdersee to compose his fifth symphony. And with the opening trumpet call, this would herald a new era for his composition. Um, as you all know, in the first four symphonies, he utilizes his own songs and he lifts them and drops them into the symphony and there are, in the second, third and fourth symphonies, there are singers who actually sing them. And so we get a sense of the world and the direction of the piece based on the text of, of, the, of the songs that he is utilizing. With these fifth, sixth, seventh, and eventually tenth symphony, there is no outward program. And I have to interrupt, apologize for my Brenda Vaccaro impersonation. But um, I don't know, we had fires in Aspen this summer and my voice hasn't righted itself since then. Um, but we'll get to the bottom of it. Don't worry about it. Um, so um, Donald Mitchell, who is the most important 20th century biographer of um, Mahler up to uh, recently with Henri Louis de Lagrange and other people doing even more in-depth scholarship. Um, he said that this was, there is a program, but it's gone underground. It's the inner voice. And I've lectured here several times about the Sixth Symphony where he himself becomes the hero of the work, and the work is a, a programmatic description of his tribulations, and in this case, eventual triumph. Um, in the Sixth Symphony, not so much. Um, this is an important symphony also because he meets his future wife, uh, his serial wife who would go on to marry many other famous men. Um, she was a composer and studied composition and in the course of the summer he would write madly during the day and she would then turn this music into what would become short score for these um, first two movements in 1901 that he wrote. He also wrote um, four of the Rickert leader and several of the Kindertoten leader at the same time. Now, Kindertoten leader are also Rickert leader. Rickert is the poet, but they 
these songs appear in different groupings. That's why I make the distinction. Um, in his works, five, six, and seven, there is cross-referencing to these songs, but never really um, a, a direct full quote, and he's not interested in the message of the songs, he's just borrowing musical material for himself, from himself. So, the, like Steve's work, completely coincidental, Steve's work is five contiguous movements. Um, this work is five independent movements. Uh, movements one and two are paired together as part one. The central scherzo is part two by itself, and then the famous adagetto and the finale are part three. And the reason he did that is because um, they complement each other. And in a minute, I'll tell you how. So the, the piece starts in C-sharp minor, but ends in D major, an important fact, which I will come back to later. So now, um, his obsession with marches, there will be marches in future symphonies, and there is a march in this one, and there are marches in symphonies that he's written previously, one, two, three, and the horn call, the trumpet call, and then the following string motive are part of the march. The trumpet call is very lean, the trumpet is by himself, in this case it's Tom Hooten, and the brasses punctuate, accentuate like a Greek chorus, but they are not part of the motive, they're just punctuation. And then the strings by themselves play another minute-long motive. And where Bach comes in is, in this work especially, contrapuntal writing is the way he articulates, enunciates, um, musically verbalizes the development. And we all know that Mahler loved very long development. So the A section of his symphonies are typically the announcement of the motives or the themes. Here it's motives. And then we go into development. Typically his developments in the Sixth Symphony and prior, they're fragmenting of these themes and they're conjugated through different keys and different personalities, different orchestration. Here, we're going to have a great demonstration of contrapuntal writing, so material put side by side or layered upon each other, and that's how he develops it, very much in the style of Bach, but synthesized through Mahler's mind and Mahler's ears. Here's the first movement. It's one minute long motive, this trumpet and brass motive.
string motive. Strings. This is also a minute long. It's contrasting in nature, but it still continues the march. the trumpet motive again and then he will repeat the string motive again and then the the development there will be moments of great outburst of something grief or tragedy or whatever he's trying to convey um, but um, the trumpet call will return after the development and this time it will end and falter in a whimper the second movement is a complementary movement to the first movement. It does pick up some of the material from the first movement and develops it in a much different way, faster speed, um, sometimes and sometimes not. Um, but in this movement is a wonderful brass chorale that will come crashing through at the end of the development. And remember this Helden sound world, um, it will, it too will falter to a whimper at the end of the second movement, but it will come back at the end of the symphony, and this time it will triumph. There's no way you will miss it. The central scherzo, um, in Mahler's words, is a human being in full light of day in the prime of his life. And this is an unusually large scale Scherzo, but it moves with great energy and speed. And much of it is as lilting and whirling waltz, and it features the wonderful Andrew Bain on the horn solo. And Mahler couldn't leave these things alone, of course. There are sardonic and boisterous and even brutal passages, but mostly you're going to be in this whirling world of the Merry Widow, in case you, you wonder where you are. That's where you are, Merry Widow. sounds like it's being thrown across the mountains and is an ebullient dance of life. And um, the horn will come back in the fifth movement and signal the beginning of the fifth movement as well. And a wonderful thing about um, 
Andrew Bain is that there are moments in the symphony when the horn is partnering the winds and he plays like a woodwind player. And there are times like the brass chorale where he needs to play like a brass player. It's very wonderful chameleon with his sound. And this is important to recognize and appreciate. The fourth movement, I uh, mentioned the serial wife, and uh, there's an important reason why. Um, she was a composer herself, and she has written um, songs which are performed these days as well. Um, Willem Menchelberg is the person who gives us this insight. He was the music director of the Royal Concertgebouw Orchestra, and from the very beginning of Mahler's compositional life, um, they, with Willem, were great champions of his works. There is, another digression, a wonderful performance of the Fourth Symphony conducted by Mahler on the first half, and again, the Fourth Symphony on the second half conducted by Willem Weinbergen at the Concertgebouw archives. I encourage you to go and uh, appreciate this because they're completely different performances. So that's how close they were. And so when Willem received the manuscript, he wrote over the fourth movement, Adagetto. This Adagetto was Gustav Mahler's declaration of love to Alma. Instead of a letter, he confided it in this manuscript without a word of explanation. She understood it and replied, he should come. I have this from both of them, WM. So this is a wonderful uh, little missive. And so it is a love letter to his wife or future wife. Um, and um, you all will know this and recognize this music. You've heard it in other places, uh, sometimes in, in not so happy instances in life, but truly it is a love letter. It is for a string orchestra and harp, and the harp sounds improvisatory in this movement. When the mood strikes you, send your partner a recording of this movement. It's beautiful. Um, so, with, um, I'm actually going to play a little bit of the opening of the fifth movement, so you can un follow what I'm going to say. Horn call responded to by the bassoon.
all of this material is going to pick up momentum and mass and more instruments and volume. But remember, this is where he is going to put the contrapuntal writing he's been studying from Bach chorales to absolute perfect use. So he's obsessed by this, these different ideas and how to combine them and develop them freely and put them side by side and put them on top of each other. And, um, and he does it in the, this movement is in the form of a rondo and, and quite literally he does quote him himself a song. Um, this, the tunes you heard are from a song that he's already written. But he's more concerned about the symphonic structure. He's not concerned about what message the song is giving. And that brass chorale, that unbelievable force of nature that was defeated in the second movement will bring this whirling contrapuntal texture, this giant fabric that's going to go on for 12 minutes to a triumphant ending. Now, a word about the key. In late 18th century and all of 19th century, the key is the key is the key is the key. You start in D, you end in D. You start in C, you end in C. Beethoven did C minor to C major, okay, that's a lot. He goes from C sharp to D major, and the intermittent movements out are in the keys that outline a D major chord. So very clever that he thought that the entire symphony is basically a preamble to the last movement. And so we have these pockets of release or tension throughout, it is the inertia leading to the D major. So that's your big aha moment at the end. It's not only just the chorale, it's that the tension of that C sharp has been resolved into D major. I turn you over to the Los Angeles Philharmonic for a terrific performance. It's been a great week. Thank you very much. Enjoy.